Praise God. It is good to be back with you this morning. I want to invite you to 2 Peter. As we finish up, 2 Peter has been a, a long and profitable journey through First and 2 Peter. And uh, it's always sad to finish a book. <laughs> you know, there's so much more, you know, you can't cover everything in a, in a sermon series, but there's so much that God has blessed me with, and I hope you as well. Um, you know, in our lives, we spend a lot of time preparing for things, don't we? And you all got up this morning, and you prepared to come to worship, and everybody did that in different ways. Some of us got up and got our teeth brushed and hair combed. Everybody in here looks like they got their teeth brushed and hair combed, but some of us got up and had to get kids up, and we had to get people ready for church and things of that nature. We prepare in different ways. Life is full of preparation, right? It's full of just preparing for things to come, for getting somewhere, for going somewhere. One of the things that people prepare the most for uh, is the wedding day. In our society, people spend a lot of time preparing for wedding day. If I'm not mistaken, because I don't know if they, the internet wasn't as popular when Julie and I got married way back a long time ago. But... Nowadays, they've got countdowns, and they've got websites that you can go on, and you can look at, and you can plan your wedding out years in advance, from what I understand, and there's certain things that guide you and what you're to do at certain times, and uh, it's just, it's so helpful, right, to have all those preparations, but we spend a lot of time preparing for a wedding day, yet a lot of times we don't spend a lot of time preparing for a marriage. There's a lot of input and, and time put into this day and not a whole lot put into the lifelong commitment that two people make. The average wedding in America today costs over $25,000. Uh, we were well below that, huh, Darl? <laughs> Countless hours are spent on an event that is by all means a momentous occasion. And that will, uh, that is all well and good. It's, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not against having big, wondrous weddings and things of that nature. However, many couples fail to spend a significant amount of time preparing for their life of commitment together. The wedding day is over, and well, two weeks have gone by, and you're sitting at the dinner table saying, what do we do now? <laughs> you spend all this time reaching this climax, and it's here, and it's like, what now? Couples would do well to prepare for their lives together, because in a moment, the wedding is over, and a marriage has begun. The scriptures teach us that our lives are but a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow, this life is short. And when it is over, those who are Christians will be with the Lord in perfect righteousness. Some people have, have put all their eggs in one basket. They've, they've trusted in a, in a moment in their life, in, a, in an occasion, in a, in a one-day event called conversion. They've trusted in this one moment in time. This prayer that they said, this baptism that they received, and yet their life never moves from that. It never goes on. They never really prepare for a life of commitment to Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants more than a one-time commitment. Salvation is more than just regeneration and justification. It's about sanctification and one day glorification. Amen? Amen. For that glorious day that is coming. And so Jesus wants more than that. As a matter of fact, this life is but a vapor and a time to prepare for our life of eternity. We are training, per se, for the life that is one day perfect. And as we prepare to look at our text, we are again this week reminding, reminded of his soon coming. 
Folks, make no mistake about it. Christ is coming back. Amen? He is coming. His soon, sure coming is soon. The critics have denied it. Cynics have laughed at it. Scholars have ignored it. Liberal theologians have explained it away. But there it is, solid as a stone, soon to be fulfilled, ready to offer us hope and encouragement amid despair and unbelief. So the question that we want to answer this morning is, since we talked about His coming that is sure last week, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in this period between our lives and salvation and His soon coming? If the doctrine of the second coming doesn't affect how we live, then does it really matter if mockers scoff at it, as the scriptures say? Shouldn't we just sweep this little embarrassing, irrelevant doctrine under the rug and, and continue our lives, focus on more important things? What should we do in light of Christ's sure return? Well, first, it might do us well to understand what we're not to do. What, what should we not do? You don't dress up in a white robe and gather with like-minded fanatics in a communal on top of some roof somewhere. You don't quit work and move to the highest mountains to be first to meet the Lord when he descends. And you don't try to set dates for his return based on strange calculations and harebrained interpretations of the signs of the times. In other words, you don't join the unbiblical fanatics who have overreacted and brought deserved ridicule themselves by the scoffers who predict some day in the future when Christ returns where everybody sees that day come and go and go, oh well, another crazy person. You don't join the likes of those. What do you do? You get your act together. You keep it together. You live every day as if it's your last day, as if the Lord is coming back in the next moment for his glory. You do work diligently at your job and in your home as if he isn't coming for another 10 years for his name's sake. I was preparing for this message and I thought, Lord, if you're coming back, Maybe you'll come back before I have to preach this message. You know why? Why should I spend a significant amount of time on this message? I mean, you could come back. That's not how we're to live. We're to prepare and, and make plans. You know why? Because he's coming. You are to shake salt everywhere you go. You are called the salt of the earth. Go be salty. You're called the light of the world. You're to spread light in a dark place. Those are the things we're to do in light of his soon return. And... In this final message, 2 Peter will give us three sets of characteristics that should be in Christians' lives as they wait this day of the Lord. But first, let's make sure we understand the context and explain the day of the Lord. So 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it reads this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord, I mean of the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, which he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And everybody said, <coughs> Amen. Well, first, let's explain this day of the Lord. Every first century Jew was somewhat familiar with the phrase day of the Lord. The expression is, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, particularly in the teaching of the prophets. The day of the Lord uh, would be that day of his brilliance, uh, where his glory would shine so intensely that the entire world would see his majesty and, and God would vindicate himself in victory and vindicate his people, Israel. We see expressions of this uh, of the day of the Lord as Israel was brought into conflict with different nations that were very much ungodly. Israel was preserved through those battles and their enemies, more importantly God's enemies, were judged. So we see God's preservation of people and we see his judgment. And that's what the day of the Lord is. This day of blessedness for those who know him and this day of judgment for those who don't. However, when, when Israel's godliness began to deteriorate, the picture of the future day become, became darker to the point when one prophet, Amos, in Amos 5.18, spoke of the day of the Lord this way. He said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is that day to you? It will be darkness, not light. We've already seen in this, in this book of 2 Peter him talking about these scoffers, these false teachers, these false prophets. He makes this comparison between believers and unbelievers. And he says, there'll be some people who claim the name of Christ, but they're not of Christ. First John says, there are those who went out from us because they were not of us. We know that there will be, there will be tares sowed among the wheat. There will be some who are, who are not of us. And so that day, listen, I'm convinced that they think they're okay. Matthew 7 says, they come to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? He'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So there are those who believe they're believers, but really their hearts have never been changed. They're dark, they're wicked, they're ungodly. And I believe he's talking about that here as well. Israel got that way. They got comfortable. They said, we're God's chosen people. We're all right. Everything's going to be okay. I've, I've said a prayer. I've walked down the aisle. I've been baptized. I've done all the things that they tell me I need to do. But their hearts were far from God. Increasingly, the concept of the day of the Lord became identified with God's final judgment, which would be a time of supreme blessedness for the faithful, but uttermost doom for those who resist Him and His kingdom. And so what else is there to say about the day of the Lord? Well, in this passage, we see that it'll come like a thief in the night. It'll come like a thief in the night. Jesus used this terminology in Matthew 24. Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians 5 2. What, what is the thing about a thief? Thieves come suddenly. They come unexpected. They come without announcement or warning. They come when you least expect it. Predicting the, the day of Christ's return, the day of the Lord, is like predicting when a thief would come to your house and break in. So, Mark, tonight at 1027 and a half. A thief will break into your house. Notice how ambiguous I was there. I said, Mark, that could mean several people in this building. <laughs> Isn't that silly to try to predict some, some date when a thief is going to break in? I mean, you may follow trends online or something, may see what's going on in your neighborhood, but you never really know 
There's no way to really know. And so that's the same way with Christ's return. There's no way to really know. There are signs for sure. Jesus told us the things that would come, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars. By the way, all those things have happened and are happening. You know, the, the, I believe, and I really believe this, that the only, thing, the only thing keeping the return of Christ is that there are more of his elect to come into the kingdom before he comes. And we talked about that last week. All the other events have happened. So his coming is soon. There are always going to be things that happen that make us think the Lord's return is even sooner. You know, Martin Luther in his day faced unprecedented turmoil in the church. Uh, he was persuaded, and he writes this, uh, that the coming day of the Lord would happen in his lifetime. Jonathan Edwards, a couple centuries later, same way, convinced he's got to be coming. How many of you have said that? Man, Jesus must be returning in my lifetime. Don't you feel like that right now? That the world is going, you, you see it such terrible things in your lifetime. I mean, school shootings, you know, theater shootings, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, nuclear threats in Israel. I mean, meteors hitting Russia this week. Come on. I mean, it's got, look, those people are going crazy over there. What's happening? Think, man, what would we do? We, we are seeing things happen. So don't you feel like it's, I believe that God intentionally makes it that way. That's why he tells them here, anticipate the day of the Lord. Wait with eager anticipation for the day of the Lord. So who knows? Man, nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or hour. I'm sure, however, that we are one day closer than Martin Luther's day. We're one day closer than Edward's. It could happen anytime. Now, at the risk of sounding cynical this morning, I really don't care about the exact day. I am not concerned about the exact date when Christ returns. God is going to keep his word. He is coming back. Amen? He's coming. My concern is more about what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime. Our purpose, our calling. How then shall we live since we know his return is imminent? Well, the last thing about the, the day of the Lord before we get into those characteristics is there's going to be a great fire. There's going to be a terrible fire. There's going to be a horrendous, you could put any adjective you want in there. There's going to be a big fire. He compares this destruction, you know. He said he'll never destroy the, the world with water again. The next time it's going to be with fire. And so we see this. Look at verses 10 and following. He says, uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Everything's going to, going to be burned up here, okay? Now, I thought last week that we had found the biblical big bang in this passage. You see that verse 10 where it says, with a great roar or a mighty roar. Some of yours says a great noise. Man, what a great, what a great way to witness to those evolutionists out there. They start bringing up the big bang. Take them right here. Say, hey, look, there's going to be a big bang. It just comes at the end, not at the beginning. <laughs> right? And so... But here, it's more like a roar from a terrible fire that comes and destroys. Have you ever heard, you ever lit something on fire that had gas on it? I've done it. I was way too close when I've done it before, too. <laughs> Singed all the hair off my eyebrows. You ever heard that sound? That's the picture that we get here, this mighty roar of God's just judgment coming by way of fire. 
Verse 12 says fire and melting and burning God's judgment on the world. This is the return of Christ. It says also we'll receive a new heaven and a new earth. Do you remember when Noah's world was destroyed? Everything was destroyed with water and there was a new earth, so to speak. Now, it was still fallen. It was still ungodly because the next thing we see is Noah laying on the beach naked and drunk. And so, I mean, we've got these, these things where the world is still messed up. But on this day, when God comes and he does this wrecking of the world, this judgment, his final judgment, the scripture tells us right here, we'll receive a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Do you see that at the end of verse 12? It says, waiting for and hasting the coming day of the Lord, which the heavenly bodies will burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's the difference. It's going to be a, a great fire that cleanses this world of ungodliness. New heaven, new earth, complete righteousness. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Do you not long for that day when you don't have to turn on the news and see destructive things happening anymore? Do you not long for the day when you get up and your back don't hurt no more? Amen. Do you long for that day when everything's going to be all right? Yes, he's coming. That day is coming, and it could very well happen in our time. So you get the picture. The day of the Lord is coming, and it's coming like a thief in the night. And the fires of God's just judgment will consume the earth and a new heaven and a new earth will be ushered in. The question is, how do we live in light of the soon coming king? How do we live in light of this conclusion to all time? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are three sets of characteristics for, for Christians in these verses in light of the soon coming Christ. The first one we see in verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The, the set of characteristics here are holiness and godliness. It says, since all these things will be dissolved. What things? Everything. All things. All the things we hope and strive for, we place so much importance on. All the stuff in this world that often distracts us and causes us to commit adultery toward God, those things will be dissolved. They will be burned up. Your house, your car, this building, many of your family and friends will be burned up in God's just judgment. You ever get so tired? Your life is spent on so many worldly things. The scripture says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world is going down in a blaze of glory. It's going to burn, burn, burn. In a... This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond. This world is not our home. Everything that we have. You could dress GQ if you want. When you get to heaven, we all will be wearing white robes. Amen. The things we spend our energy and time on will be consumed, the scripture tells us. What does holiness mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. That's what holiness is. Different from the world. So when Christ returns, you want to be different. You want to be holy. You want to be making your election sure, as the scripture says. I remember growing up and mom and dad leaving and giving us some sort of assignment to do while they were gone. Anybody ever get that? 
Parents left home and said, hey, look, when I get back, I want the grass to be cut. Well, we would kind of calculate how long they were going to be gone as to when we would start working on the chore or task we were given. And so we would continue as if nothing were happening. We would be playing or doing whatever we were doing. But as the time drew near for them to come back, as we knew their return was imminent, we would get to work. We would put our hands to the plow or whatever it may be. We'd cut the grass or whatever it may be because we knew they were coming back and we did not want to be caught when they got back not doing what they told us we ought to be doing. I remember other times facing the judgment of my father, something I didn't want to face. I remember a time where Doug and I, my brother, we decided we would go explore. We were young, probably, I don't know, 8 to 12 years old, somewhere in there. We would explore the creek behind our house that ran through. Uh, the rain had come for a couple of days, and so we knew that it would be up some. And so we decided we'd go explore. But in order to explore really well, we'd have to wear boots. We didn't have boots, so we decided we'd use Dad's boots. He had two pairs of lacrosse rubber boots. Good boots. High dollar boots. So Doug and I, we walked down to the creek with our little feet and his big boots. And we walked a little too deep in the water. And I remember the water coming up over the boots and it felt cool on our feet. So we got home, we emptied the water out, we placed the boots back on the porch. Well, that day, that day Dad got home from work. He decided to go work out in the garden. And he slipped his boots on. Squish. It rose up in him. <laughs> but he's got two pair of boots. That's the whole reason. So he put a new pair of socks on. <laughs> slides his foot down in the, new, the other pair of boots. Squish. And I could hear the anger inside of him rise up. <laughs> Doug and Matt, get in here. And so we came in, and, and he was furious. And he said, you listen, you go in your room, because I can't spank you right now. It wouldn't be right. <laughs> and so he sends us into our room. Doug and I, we are just, we are overwhelmed with this idea that the soon coming just judgment of our father is upon us. And so what did we do? We did what any 8 to 12 year old boy would do. We prepared. We got every pair of shorts we had. And we put them on. And he spanked us and we screamed and cried and hollered. And when he left out, I looked at Doug and I was like, it didn't hurt. <laughs> Folks, I'm afraid that one day it's going to be too late for that. When God's just judgment comes, it's never, there's going to be no more time to prepare it comes like a thief in the night. Right now is the warning time. It's coming. His soon return is coming. Go ahead and get your shorts on. Go ahead and trust Christ. Believe in Christ. Because His return is imminent. And when He comes, it'll be too late. So trust Christ now. So we're to be holy. We're to be godly. What else? Well, verse 14 tells us that we're, we're to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, you see that, that idea of waiting for his return again, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, in contrast to the false teachers in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 13, uh, who were stains and blemishes, Peter exhorts his readers here to be spotless and blameless. The idea here is not to put on concealer for your blemishes, but to remove them completely. That is called 
Repentance. That's called repentance. It's not to cover up your sin, but to do away with it, to turn from it, to repent of it. Peter has already warned them against false teachers that some who claimed uh, that they're from Christ but are not of Christ. The, the Pharisees were good at this. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were they were dead men's bones is what the scripture says. They were, they were not righteous. And there are many in our churches and outside, some who are truly saved and some who aren't, that work hard at looking good on the outside, but they fail to con- cultivate a heart of righteousness on the inside. They have a good reputation among men and their peers, but only through hypocritical hiding of their unrepented sins. Christians should not be like that. They should be characterized of being diligent to be without spot or blemish. They should be very repentant when sin creeps up in their life. Christians should have high levels of integrity and personal holiness. And I think this goes hand in hand with the idea of peace here. He says, and at peace. If you're a believer, then you know that feeling of unrest in your life when there's sin present. When there's unrepentant sin, you know that feeling of of peace is absolutely gone. It's shattered. There's there's more guilt. There's uh, shame. And hopefully there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And then peace comes again. But in those moments where sin is present, peace is not there. And he says, as you wait for this day, be, be diligent to be without spot or blemish and at peace. Work hard at being at peace. This idea is that you have a confident faith in the Lord. You're able to more freely share about Christ's love because you've experienced it. Amen? And it leads us to this phrase verse in verse 15 that I think is so important. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul wrote here. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What does he, what does he mean by that? The idea here is, is similar to what we talked about last week when we said the Lord is not is, is patient, is long-suffering with you, not willing that any of you should perish but that all should come to eternal life. The idea is there is still time right now for the elect to come into the kingdom of God. He is calling his people to himself. He is gathering his elect from the four corners of the world or the earth, and he is is moving in that direction. And so the Lord has not returned yet, so there are more people to come into the kingdom. And guess what? You get to be a part of bringing them in. God has let you in on it. He uses you as preachers of the gospel. There's still time to tell the story of Jesus. So we're to be diligent, found spotless, without blemish, and at peace. Because his patience is salvation. There's time. There's time for those to come into the kingdom of God. The third set of characteristics are found in in verses 17 and 18. Look at that with me. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what? Knowing that the day of the Lord is upon us. Take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and to eternity. The characteristic of Christians here is that we should be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead of... (coughs) falling prey to the schemes of false teachers, Peter encourages his readers here to pursue Christ's likeness and spiritual growth. Paul gave similar instructions in Ephesians 4, and since, and since Peter has just acknowledged Peter, uh, Paul's 
scriptural authority, uh, we should heed these words. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So while we are waiting for Christ's return, we are in a, a time of sanctification in our lives. God is growing us. He is, he is building us up as his body of believers. And so that is a characteristic that should mark your life. Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Are you growing in those areas? While we're here, let's get all of Christ we can get. Amen? Let's get all of his word that we can get. Study. Show yourself approved. Pray at all times. In the spirit, pray. Man, God help us to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know for me, the more I learn about Christ, the more excited I get as a Christian. When you begin to study the deep truths of God's word, I mean, listen, every truth is good. When you talk about atonement and adoption, you get into these ideas that you were so not God's people, but he has now called you his people. If that doesn't get you excited, you need to press the excitement button in your life. Man, that's exciting. When you talk about the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, what that means, that right now as I stand before you, I am empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak forth this truth to you. God's words, not Matt Jones's words. Praise God. Man, that excites you. That gives you a zeal and a, a fervor to preach more, to teach more, to love more, to grow more. And may God help us as Christians to be characterized by this idea that our lives are growing spiritually. We're not stagnant. Listen, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, there are times in your life where you just feel stagnant. Or you just feel like nothing is happening. It's okay. Get back into the Word. Stay with it. Discipline yourself. Discipline yourself to be in his word and to come to church and to go through those things that you know Christ says to do and they will build you up and you'll grow. So we're to be characterized by this, by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does this apply to us? We'll wrap up here. How does all this apply? We know the day of the Lord's coming. We know our lives should be marked uh, by growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by holiness and godliness, by being diligent without spot or blemish and at peace. What does all that mean? Well, I think these three things. It means we're to clean up, look up, and speak up. First, clean up. What areas of your life require some cleaning? Don't rush through this. Very serious here. What areas in your life require some cleanup? All of us have sin in our lives. Mark those fleshly deeds or the absent spiritual fruit. Then go to God, confess your sins, seek his forgiveness, and ask for strength to overcome that sin. Clean up. Look up. Have I told you the last couple of weeks he's coming? Christ is coming. Look up. Long for his return. Live your life as if Christ is coming back soon. 
You know, Peter was writing this to these believers, and I believe that they really believed that Christ would come in their lifetime. I believe that's how we're to live. I believe that's the point exactly. All of us are to live as if he could come back right now in our lifetime. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he's coming. And so we're to live like it. Maybe you need to examine how you spend your time and your resources in life in light of the fact that he could come at any moment. Are you tied up in things that will perish with this world, things that will pass away? How might you need to adjust your schedule or, or your budget to focus more on Christ's soon return? And then finally, we're to speak up. We're to speak up. Until he comes, there are those who need to hear the gospel to be saved. How can they hear without a preacher? Speak up, church. Speak up to your neighbors at the ball fields or social events, at your workplace, wherever God sends you. Speak up about Christ's return, about Christ's salvation. Go to the nations. Ask how God might use you to make his glory known to all nations throughout the scripture. Salvation is not for just, just one select nation, one group of people. Salvation is for all who will come. Even in Israel's day, there was exceptions made for those sojourning to come in to Israel. And even in Scripture we see not all Israel is Israel. Or not all Israel are Israel. So speak up. There are those who need to hear the gospel. Why? Why any of this? Why is any of this a concern to us this morning? Well, look at the last thing that Peter says, and we'll close. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Why? Because God deserves the glory. God deserves the glory. And that's how Peter ends his letter. How fitting. So may it be our prayer that our lives, that everything we do and say would bring glory to the one who deserves glory. And everybody said, 